You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Some familiar threat actors, both nation-states and criminal gangs, return to the news. Venomous Bear, Charming Kitten, Wizard Spider, and Maze? Oh my. Mike Benjamin from Lumen looks at the Mosey Malware family. Our guest is Neil Dennis from Cyware on why it's time for organizations to step up their data sharing. And Big Tech's day on Capitol Hill involved more discussion of censorship and bias than it did Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 29th, 2020. Several familiar threat actors are back in the news. Some represent states, others are just criminal gangs. We'll take up the state actors first. The Russian government operation Turla, also known as Venomous Bear, is back. According to Accenture cyber threat intelligence researchers, Turla has hacked an unnamed European government. Bleeping computer reports the Russian group deployed recently updated remote administration Trojans and remote procedure call-based backdoors in attacks between June and October of this year. The Estonian government and others have associated Turla with Russia's FSB, the Federal Security Service, a principal successor to the old Soviet KGB. CyberScoop's discussion of the reasons behind Turla's repeated success focuses on the care, patience, and attention to detail the threat group uses to gain access to its targets. Embassies and diplomatic missions have figured high on Turla's target list, but it's also made attempts on military organizations, including United States Central Command. Accenture's report concludes, quote, Turla will likely continue to use its legacy tools, albeit with upgrades, to compromise and maintain long-term access to its victims because these tools have proven successful against Windows-based networks. Government entities, in particular, should check network logs for indicators of compromise and build detections aimed at thwarting this threat actor. End quote. The other state actor in the news comes courtesy of Tehran. Microsoft has reported successful efforts by the Iranian threat group Redmond Tracks as Phosphorus, also known as APT35 or Charming Kitten, to access accounts belonging to people thought likely to attend the Munich Security Conference and the Think20 Summit in Saudi Arabia. Charming Kitten's goal this time around appears to have been collecting intelligence on foreign policy. The initial entree is gained, as is usually the case, through phishing. People whose background and expertise make them plausible participants in the two high-profile conferences are being sent spoofed invitations by email. 
COVID-19 restrictions serve as an aid to the plausibility of the invitation. If you live, for example, in Rio de Janeiro, you might not be likely to hop on the next Lufthansa run to Munich. But signing up to attend a conference online is a different matter altogether, and the fishbait proffers access to remote sessions that anyone might well be tempted to consider. Once you sign up, well, the credential harvesting begins. Microsoft says the emails use near-perfect English and were sent to former government officials, policy experts, academics, and leaders from non-governmental organizations. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, with the FBI and the Department of Health and Human Services, yesterday issued a warning that the RIAC operators were conducting a very large campaign against U.S. hospitals. Much of the ransomware deployment is being conducted from the revived TrickBot Trojan, somewhat impeded but still affected. The RIAC operators are sometimes known by the name security firm CrowdStrike gave them, Wizard Spider. They're a Russophone criminal gang, not a unit of the intelligence or security organs. RIAC may be run by feral, conscienceless criminals, but at least they can't be accused of pious hypocrisy. They're not among the gangs who promise to put healthcare organizations on a do-not-touch list, nor are they among the crooks posturing as Robin Hoods by making donations to charity. Ryuk is run by old-fashioned bandits with no interests beyond the main chance. Organizations in the healthcare and public health sector should be especially on their guard. Their services are more important than ever during the pandemic, and any disruptions are a serious matter. CISA has some useful advice on its site. One prominent and much-repeated bit of advice is that you shouldn't pay the ransom. Not only does that fuel the bandit economy, but there's no particular reason to think it will do you any good. An effective preparation and recovery plan should be well within the grasp of any healthcare organization. And there are signs that a prominent ransomware group may be shutting down. Bleeping Computer says that the Maze Gang appears to be closing its operation. New infestations appear to have stopped in September, and the gang is making what appears to be a last-minute push for payment from its existing victims. Maze is well known as a criminal innovator. The gang was among the first to combine conventional ransomware with direct blackmail, stealing as well as encrypting its victims' data and threatening to release it online. It's also been marked by its relatively sophisticated media relations, acting more like a corporation with a public affairs office than like a collection of thugs beating their chests in some biker bar. The speculation about a shutdown comes largely from fringe chatter and rumor. When Bleeping Computer contacted Maze's press contacts, the only answer they got was a coy wait-for-the-press release. Other criminal operators have shut down in the past, and if Maze does close its doors, that's not to be taken as unalloyed good news. It won't mean they've seen the error of their ways and gone straight. It's just that they'll have shifted operations to another criminal toolbox. In the case of Maze, that's likely to be the relegated Egregor ransomware. And finally, according to the Wall Street Journal, yesterday's U.S. Senate Commerce Committee hearings largely addressed senatorial concerns about online platforms' content moderation. Facebook, Google, and Twitter CEOs testified. TechCrunch complains that Section 230 was hardly addressed, at least not directly. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is the law that gives Internet platforms the intermediate status they presently enjoy, with most of the benefits of a neutral public square on the one hand and a publisher on the other, but without many of the responsibilities or liabilities of either. 
Section 230 has been widely credited with fostering the growth of the Internet, but its continuing utility has come into question in recent years as the Internet strikes many observers as having outgrown the need for that sort of shelter. Questions were perhaps predictably partisan, with Republicans concerned that big tech was censoring speech big tech didn't care for, but conservatives liked, and Democrats concerned that big tech wasn't censoring enough speech progressives didn't like. In general, Twitter's Dorsey was the most defiant, Google's Pachai the most determinedly respectable, and Facebook's Zuckerberg the most... Well, maybe we could all do better and let's all try to get along. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The online criminal bad guys and gals have long established a culture of information sharing, dating back to the days of dial-up BBSs to today's dark web forums and markets. Our guest, Neil Dennis from Cyware, says it's time organizations took a page out of the hacker's handbook and stepped up their information sharing. Today, we're very fortunate where we're at, I think, personally, technologically and scale of what's going on today than where we were maybe, say, even five years ago. Uh, today, we see a lot of new technologies out there that are able to standardize and facilitate like the machine-to-machine aspects of things that when I first got into the ISAC world a handful of years ago, were not really well-founded. Uh, we've got a lot better standards, a lot more uh, 
initial adoption around even some of those standards, which is obviously key. But even more importantly, you know, five, six years ago, ISALs as a concept were new. We, we kind of had that happen in 2015 with the executive order. But we've gone from nothing to a lot of little things. And we're kind of reaching, I think, critical mass in the sense where most of them understand that they still can't, even if they have a 100-member base or a 10,000-member base, they can't necessarily continue to go at it alone. So a lot of them are starting to foster legit relationships between those communities and starting to have those more kind of open door policies for sharing between, at the very least, between the analysts that facilitate the community at the very least, if not actually fostering like cooperative groups and things like that and and moving that ball forward a lot. So um, we're definitely not to the 100% mark. But we are starting to see a lot more collaborative environment, even within the actual communities themselves, like inter-community. And that, that's a big key development, I think. And just to, for clarity, um, ISALs are information sharing and analysis organizations, and ISACs are information sharing and analysis centers. Um, what is holding folks back at this point, the, the, the people who are still feeling a little resistant to it? What's uh, getting in their way? There's a couple of things. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially in the ISAL world specifically, not the ISAC world, a lot of people get involved in there have some legal concerns. Uh, I think that the structured legality of an ISAC blatantly provides you with a little bit more overhead on what constitutes safe to share information versus what would be considered a breach. And even then within ISACs, they still have some concerns. But long and short, ISALs, that, that legal overhead is a little fuzzier for Good reasons. Um, we didn't want to, the government didn't want to dictate too much within them. They kind of wanted to see this uh, kind of native growth within the industries for these things. And so I think legality issues, concerns around that, understanding what is okay to share, what's considered non compete, what's considered competitive sharing, you know, and those antitrust laws and things of that nature. And then the other part of that, just, you know, institutionalizing and adopting of both, you know, the human to human interface and then that ma- that uh, machine to machine component. So technology plays a good role in lack of adoption. We're, we're still new as a whole to this idea. And people's first questions, one of the first ones is, you know, hey, do I actually, is there actually any value proofed out from this? Has anybody shown that me being involved in these organizations actually matters other than just me saying I'm there? And once again, we're, we're reaching that critical mass, we're reaching that capability where we can start showing these things and we have use cases and scenarios that proof out the value of these communities. And hopefully in the next year to two years, you know, what's available now just exponentially explodes as we start building more around those use cases and those scenarios that show that value added. That's Neil Dennis from Cyware. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Mike Benjamin. He's the head of Black Lotus Labs, which is part of Lumen Technologies. Uh, I want to talk today about something you and your team have been uh, tracking, and you call it Mosey. What's going on here? Yeah, Mosey is a malware family that targets IoT devices. And it's interesting because the actors behind it have taken some of the source code from a few different IoT families and put them together to to create a, a new generation of malware. And so this particular malware family is capable of DDoS attacking, it's capable of data exfiltration, 
And then as many families do these days, it supports arbitrary payload execution. So the actors at the end of the day can tell us to do just about anything on the endpoint that's infected. Uh, what, what's interesting about this compared to many of the other IoT families is that this one is a peer-to-peer network rather than a, a simple hierarchical C2 back to a, a single or a small subset of domain names. So it works from a network perspective very different. Uh, but at the end of the day, the DDoS code came directly from other families. Hmm. Now, why peer-to-peer? What, what are the advantages here that it gives uh, the attackers? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, just as some attackers like writing in C and others write it in Go, it, it, in many cases, is a preference of the tooling of the particular actor group. There are hmm. benefits to them that, from a takedown perspective, can be a little more difficult to remove the infections. However, from a control perspective, it can be more difficult for them. So making sure that they maintain access to the network and access to the infrastructure can be difficult. It's also more code to maintain in order to maintain the distributed tables and other things. Even when they're taking code from other open source projects, it's still a larger software development exercise than a simple TCP socket to a standard C2. Hmm. Now, what kind of devices is Mosey targeting here? Well, unfortunately, it's the same answer we give to a lot of IoT malware families. So it's consumer grade routers and it's you know small business and consumer grade DVRs and NVRs. It's the same embedded Linux systems that we've sort of been plagued by in this space for the last few years. It really isn't changing. I, I am happy to report that at least they are new generations of devices. They are different vendors. They are different software revs. And so whereas a few years ago we were seeing the exact same revs and the exact same vendors just get compromised over and over, the industry is getting better, and it is taking a little longer for the actors to release new exploits, to incorporate new exploits, and they are going away faster once they're incorporated. So we're getting better, but I, I'd rather not come on and tell you that it's consumer routers and NVRs again in the future. So we've still got room to improve. Yeah, well, what can we do to stop this? What's effective for shutting it down? Well, the first is making sure things are patched, making sure you're buying equipment that auto-patches or is capable of patching is, is the most basic. But but even then, making sure that the TCP connections are not available to the open internet. And so most of these actor groups, they scan the internet on some pretty common ports, use some pretty well-known exploits. So if the port's not open and the exploit doesn't work, they're gonna move right on. So there's pools of thousands and thousands of these things uh, you know, as of this morning, this botnet is about 14,000 strong, that your one individual home is just not going to be of interest if they can't connect to it. They're going to move to the next one. I see. Interesting. All right. Well, Mike Benjamin, as always, thanks for joining us. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Make a run for the border. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.